Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola, this is Elvis, the Mexican Elvis. You are listening to the devil's music. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hey there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music, a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me I'm a punk rock witch from Hollywood, California. I've had a lifelong passion for rock and roll and the occult that started when I was a preteen. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in LA. And as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go, started producing shows, and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to write for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe to teach and perform dance. You might have also seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. Look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, go to my website, pleasantgaiman.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcasts network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here at Pantheon tells stories about the music we just adore so much, each and every one with a different twist. Find them all wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. And head on over to PantheonPodcast.com to share a show with a friend. Or be damned to purgatory forever. Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to The Devil's Music. 
Today, my guest is someone I've known for years. He was absolutely influential in the early 80s LA punk scene, from his famous and infamous record store Vinyl Fetish to the clubs he co-ran and created, making alternative nights before that term was actually in use. Nowadays, he'd be called an influencer. Please welcome Joseph Brooks. Hi, Joseph. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm working hard and enjoying every minute of it. Joseph makes you know? really amazing jewelry too, but we'll we'll get into that later because I know that everyone listening wants to hear about all the 80s crazy, crazy stuff going on. So um I don't even know this. Were you? Are you from LA? How do I not know this? Uh-uh. No, um, I lived. Um, I grew up in New York City, and then in '71, I moved to Northern California um, because of some um, uh, legal matters in New York that <laughs> made me have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I ended up in Northern California and um, got into the scene in San Francisco in the 70s and then um, ended up in L.A. I moved to L.A. officially in 78 um, after visiting several times and, and meeting a lot of the people here and then um, at the, the famous uh, Sex Pistol show at Winterland met a huge group of LA people that talked me into it and said, you've got to move to LA. So between all of that, I ended up here in 78 and um, uh, have been here ever since. Yeah. Everybody, there was like a mass, um, a mass migration up to, up to San Francisco for that sex pistol show. Like, like yeah, everybody realized like if you were going to ever see them, this was it, even though we didn't know it was the final show we all felt like this is the final show for the for the US tour and if we ever had a chance to see them this was going to be the one do you remember how much the tickets were i still have mine no they were 3 dollars no. and that was really expensive <laughs> i don't remember that 3 dollars yeah. that was incredible wow and kid congo kid congo and i were um you know, we, we drove up with Teresa Carriquez and um, uh -huh. Kay and a bunch of people all crammed into Teresa's Honda. And we, uh -huh. we all took, we were all on hallucinogenics. And I remember the line was around the block. And um, Kid and I just like, we just walked to the front of the line and just wandered in and nobody stopped. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing that happens only when you're tripping, you know, like we just... Yeah. We just, right. no one said anything. So we just went in there. Right. So yeah, I had a, a partner back then named Henry uh, who um, we went to the show together and he had come down to LA previous to that to see the damned at Starwood. At Starwood. And I had, I couldn't go cause I had work and um, he came back and told me about LA and all the amazing people he met here at the Starwood show. And so then at Winterland, all those people were there and he introduced me to everybody. And that's, the, I distinctly remember that's where I met kid was that night. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, 
you know, like we we were all so privileged to experience that stuff then, you know, especially yeah. the overseas things because touring back then wasn't the same as it is now for bands, you know, and right, and just um, yeah. And my first LA experience was coming down here was to see the three nights at the Whiskey of the Ramones. Oh um, yeah. With two shows every night, an early show and a late night show. And Blondie opened all six shows. I went to all six shows. And and um, then afterwards, you know, Tomato had that party at his house. Oh, my God. Yes, talk about that because that party was so fucking insane. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It was so influential to me because it really um, solidified... um, why I wanted to be here. And Tomato knew that I wasn't from here. And he made a point of taking me around arm in arm and introducing me to everybody there because he was sort of like the unofficial mayor of the scene. Like he was so important to everybody and everyone respected him so much. And he made a point of making sure that I was comfortable that I knew everyone, that I was going to be okay, and that I was going to move here. So he 
you know, more than any one person really was my introduction to the L.A. scene and, and why I ended up living here. I remember when um, when uh, Joan Jett and Randy Kay, my lobotomy yeah. co-editor, we were sitting in the in the. Um, we were sitting in the balcony at the whiskey at those Blondie and Ramon shows, which we went to every single one of them all week long, like like how you did. Uh-huh. And we saw Tomato and Gear standing standing on the dance floor, and we our heads just swiveled, and and we were all just, who the fuck is that? Because Tomato, um, I'm talking about Tomato from the Screamers for anyone that's listening. Um, the most legendary LA punk band that never really got recorded. My favorite, my favorite. Everyone's favorite from LA. And um, I feel so sorry for any of you guys that weren't in LA then, which was legions of you, <laughs> but um, they, they were they were definitely immortal. But Tomato was wearing like this 50s red suit jacket, like a, and he had a giant like wooden coat hanger shoved in the back of it. and gear had on a black leather jacket and their hair was standing straight up like the screamers logo and like joan and randy and i just sort of walked down like 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 we were on lost in space or some sci-fi show just looking at like the the new aliens that had arrived on the planet (laughs) totally they were so nice they were the nicest they were everything and not only were they wonderful and their house was iconic but their band, once you saw them, it was everything else just looked like ordinary and tame. And and they were so like futuristic and 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 like nothing we had seen before. And they blew your mind. They were so good. And and I just, you know, can't say enough good things about them. Yeah. And so that party that night at the Wilton Hilton, the Screamers House. Yeah. I com- I remember all of Blondie and the Ramones being there and smoking uh-huh. uh, smoking joints with Debbie Harry and Joey Ramone. Uh-huh. And Debbie got so high <laughs> that she she started to fall over and, <laughs> and Randy said, What are you doing? And Debbie said, Ah, uh, I was just smelling that tree and we were <laughs> Because we just seen her on stage like such a goddess all week long. Right. She was like more dorky than we were. Right, right, right. But it made you love her more. Like it was just like she was so real and so sweet. And and, and meeting her there that night too, also, and that was what I remember the most about it was like, oh, she's just like us. She's like and there was also cool. So beautiful. Was like, yeah, yeah amazing and and i met danny fields there um and and you know i made i used to silk screen a lot of shirts and stuff for shows because my whole thing was i was a big fan you know i went i went to all this because i was a fan like that was who i was from like early on as a kid like i was a music fan and i would go see shows and i'd follow bands around and and that was just like the way it was and I used to silk screen a lot of t-shirts for shows and so that I would have a shirt that no one else had and stuff. And I made Ramon shirts and I gave them to them that night. And um, I remember they were really happy with them because I had put like American Eagle wings on them. Oh, cool. On the Ramon. And and um, 
I met Arturo, who had done designed their logos and stuff that that time too. And and um, I remember Didi saying that he was really happy that I put the wings on the American Eagle wings on him. He was really happy about that. And I gave them all T-shirts and it was, and I got them to sign the shirts. And then I took one of the Ramon shirts because a couple of weeks later, Andy Warhol signed, came to L.A. and was signing posters in Venice at Ace Gallery. Um, and we went and I was wearing my Ramon shirt that I made. And I got Andy Warhol to sign my Ramon shirt. And I got him to write one, two, three, four, like Didi would say, like one, two, three, four. And I, wrote, he had, I got it and it says one, two, three, four, Andy Warhol. Oh, my God. Under the Ramon picture. I still have it. I, I still have a leather jacket that Debbie Harry signed from that same time on the inside. And we had, we had just interviewed her for Lobotomy, my fanzine. And, um, yeah, yeah. And she she wrote on the inside of it, vomit lobotomy. And she spelled lobotomy with an A, <laughs> like just accidentally. And it says like XXOO, love Deb. And then that jacket was lost for like, I don't know, 35 years or something. And, um. Anna Statman returned it to me because she had found it in a paper bag in her mom's garage from when she was helping me move out of my punk house disgrace. And she brought it to me in the middle of, of an art show I was having of lobotomy stuff. And she said, here, this is for you. And she just gave it to me like in this paper bag. And I had no idea what it was. And I opened it up and I screamed so loud that security ran into the room because they thought a fight had broken out. Wow, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah, you mentioned Randy. Randy ended up working for me, at, with me at Vinyl Fetish, like my record store. Like he was one of our first, if not our first employee that we hired. Yeah. Um, so Randy, amazing. Let's talk about Vinyl Fetish, because for anybody listening, Vinyl Fetish was like the coolest record store on the face of the planet. Um, like you had in stores, uh, in store appearances of insane people like like everybody. They'd be mobbed like 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 Susie and the Banshee. We did everything we could to meet the bands. You know, we were fans. Henry and I were fans. We would try to get backstage. We try to meet people. We went to England to see bands before bands had record deals. You know, we saw everybody before they even put out a single, you know, because we heard about these scenes that were happening and we wanted to see it, you know, for ourselves. And I remember we were living in Northern California. I used to call CBGBs and ask the girl at the door to hold the phone out so I could hear what the band sounded like. Oh, my God, that's so amazing. Because there were no records, there was no internet, there was nothing, you know. And and we went to England in '78, and we went and we saw everybody, you know, Adam and the Ants and Susie and the Banshees, and you name it. Before they ever had records out, yeah. And and then we met some people that had record stores in England, and we were like, oh my god, this is what we want to do when we get back home. And we went into this one record store on Kings Road, and we were pulling records out of the bins. And the guy goes, uh, can I help you? Um, I go, we're going to buy these. And he goes, you are? And so I said, yeah, do you have a, a box? You have a cardboard box? And we filled up boxes full of records. And he's like, what is this for? And they go, like, it's for my personal collection. And it was. 
And he goes, well, you should think about maybe, you know, I could help you open a record store in, in L.A. You know, you might I could help you get records sent over. He was working for Beggar's Banquet at the time and he was Bauhaus's manager. Um, and um, is before Bauhaus, though, but um, he took us out. He says, I have a car. You want to see bands? I'll take you around. He took us to the splits and um Every band that was playing, we went and saw them. Wire, um, you name it, we saw them, and it was so much fun. And then we came back to L.A., and we started saving our money up to open a record store. And we we bought, we rented the space um, on La Brea at first, and we didn't have enough money to buy records yet. So we used to have, like, performance art in the space. So we had, like, Johanna Wendt one night um we had priscilla b one night and then one night we showed a movie we exine's sister was here with a movie she made um ecstatic stigmata that's and right so i remember we, that we showed, yeah. we showed that movie um um we would do use the space for everything and then we had enough money to buy a handful of records so we opened the store we had maybe 50 records that's all we could afford at the time, you know, and we started, we grew from there and we were trying to do things where we were, it was mostly imports and it was mostly records you couldn't get anywhere else. So, cause we were fans, we wanted to get them for ourselves. So when records would come in, we'd go like, okay, one for us, one for the store, one for us, one for the store. And, and um, then we started contacting the bands that we had met and said, Hey, you want to do a record signing? Um, we can host it. And the first one we ever did was X when their album came out. Because they were a local band and we knew them. Yeah. And so we had X come to the store and they signed their record. And this was the very first one we did. And then um, the second one we did, we did like Cabaret Voltaire and Young Marble Giants, two English bands that were playing at Soka Hall. I re- yeah, I a- remember I was at the store for for... For, I think for both of those and Sokol Hall, I'm going to explain this to the audience. Um, they're like L.A. punk or almost any kind of punk wasn't getting covered in American music magazines and papers. So and and clubs were very leery of having anything that they thought was punk, even if it wasn't, you know, like hardcore punk. So like the the club that Joseph just mentioned, Sokol Hall. We always wound up having shows in in banquet halls or weird like you know spaces. So there was, you know, there was always like um, you know like the Elks Lodge. A lot of you have heard about the Elks Lodge riot, but there was so many other weird little. Um, there was Bases Hall. There was like the Ukrainian halls. Anyway, we should take a little break right now, and we'll be back in a second with 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 Joseph. We're gonna listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Hi, we're back. 
<laughs> so yeah, so we started doing in stores, yeah, and we did the we did a lot of them, and the, then we did we did one. Then the record company started contacting us and saying, "Hey, we have this English band coming. Would you host the the them?" And 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 it was bands we knew because we were selling the import singles. So we had, you know, psychedelic furs when their first singles came out in England. We had them when they played the whiskey and. And then we had we had you two and maybe twenty five people showed up. Nobody knew who they were. <laughs> Nobody knew who they were. Hardly anybody showed up to have their record signed. Um, I have photos of what the store looked like with you two in it, and it's just like there's not twenty five people in the store. It's really like hilarious. And then we outgrew that space and we found a space on Melrose, a bigger place. And then we moved the record store there. And then that's where we really started kicking off in 1980. Um, we had, you know, everybody, you name it. The, we had times where we had record signings where the street would get closed down. There was that many people that would spill out from the sidewalk across the street and traffic couldn't get by. I remember that. That was crazy. Like, and it, like I... I would always come to a lot of the, um, you know, the, the signings and the in-store appearances, uh -huh. but sometimes you'd be like two blocks away and, 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 you know, on the bus and be like, wow, thank God I don't have to park for this shit. You know, like <laughs> that it was, was the beginning. You were like in on the beginning of, of like the whole quote, quote, Melrose Avenue scene, you know, like yeah. one of the first cool stores down there before it turned yeah. into like music and fashion central. Yeah, we were there early and that's why we could afford it because the rents went crazy. But, um, you know, we were there and across the street from us was Let It Rock and down the street was uh, Helen's Retail Slot. And um, there was like this core of people would go to all these stores and Poser. So... People would go shopping on Melrose, would hit our store, clothing stores, punk stores, and and all in the same time. And, and um, you know, I mean, we had the most amount of people, I think, was for the damned. Um, when they showed up, it was like literally thousands of people on the street trying to get in. And Iggy came and signed his book when he did that book, I Need More, his autobiography. He came and painted his face and signed books. and. We had all the Ramones. We had, you know, Susie two times or three times. Um, uh, the Cult, uh, the you know, Culture Club, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran. Um, all of these bands the first time they came to America. Bauhaus, Love and Rockets. Um, all of these bands the first time they showed up in L.A. Um, from England we got them to come and sign records and do an appearance. And, and it was very exciting stuff because no one was doing anything like that. And we were fans. And so we were like appealed to what the fans wanted. And people wanted that. People really wanted to be able to come and get something signed. And it yeah, was fun. And no, no mainstream places were doing it, that at all. And then that, Let's talk about also um, like the the clubs that you that that you started doing. Like I remember the Veil. I think that was the first one. So the Veil yeah. guys was it was um sort of at the beginning of 
it was it was like a combo like correct me if i'm wrong joseph it was like a combo but of like quote quotes death rock which was what goth was kind of being called at the time and it was just sort of also you know um a hybrid with sort of new romantic stuff and that was at cafe de grand where where i was right. looking at the time and, and uh -huh. so describe some of the um some of the oh, we were doing we were doing the record store and then we had a radio show once a week on k-rock with dusty street it was called the import show so we would have one hour where we would play our favorite top seven singles from england and we would leave the records with them and say here you can have these and you can play them during the week and we broke we played for the first time in america you know bauhaus duran duran depeche mode all of this stuff like the first singles like we play them on the air. And then we said, well, why can't we do a club with this? And people could dance to this. So we wanted it to be special. So we wanted it to, nobody did that then, except for Rodney had done that already in the seventies, you know, where you got dressed up and you went out and you had, you danced to your favorite records. And they weren't like the records you hear on the radio or the top 40. They were like alternative, what they call records. So we hosted these nights and the first one we did was called the veil and it was a cafe de Graham, which was a punk venue and so you know like one night would be fear one night would be us you know it would be like I, so it was really uh, out of context and people really really went all out in dressing up people spent like a week to make an outfit to wear the next week and we, you know, we were children of Bowie and um, we, you know, so we were very always interested in that kind of glamour or glam rock or so we incorporated that. So like in the club in the beginning, we were playing like T-Rex and Roxy Music and Bowie and but we were mixing it with all this new stuff that was coming out. So it was, you know, it was based on in the beginning was very heavily new romantic. So um, then it evolved, and then the Cathay de Grand Dobbs and those people that ran it uh, sh were incredibly shady to us. And we thought, let's get out of here. And we walked down the street from Cathay de Grand, and we walked into lingerie where nobody cared about any at all. Nobody went there; they had no business. And we said, "Hey, we're getting like you know huge amounts of kids showing up. Would you be willing to host our night?" And they said, "Yeah." Because they needed the business, and we would, we said we'd guarantee that they would do like X amount of dollars at the bar, and sure enough, we did the veil at Cafe de Grand, and was like huge lines around the block, and then we started doing it two nights a week, and then we decided like we needed to switch it, so then we changed the name of it, and we called it the Fetish Club, and that's when it was like real gothy, but in those days it was called Death Rock. Yes. <laughs> And, um, you know, we, we geared it more towards that stuff. So it was more like Susie and Bauhaus and Sisters of Mercy. And, and um, it was more going in that direction because we were following music trends. And, and um, then we moved it from there next door to the Berwyn Entertainment Complex, which is now the, the Hollywood Athletic, Athletic Club. Yeah. And then we started to have live bands. So then we had like Christian Death. And um, Red Cross and um, um, who else? Oh, we had 
it was a band with friends of ours did it was called billy wisdom oh that's right remember yeah. billy wisdom? yeah yeah and we had them play because they did a total ziggy stardust uh live show that was amazing and it was made up of guys from all other bands like uh monitor and and human hands and all these other a lot of those uh, pasadena friends of ours that had bands in the punk days back there and so they did this like total glam show it was called billy wisdom and the he she's yeah i forgot about that they were fun (laughs) this is the people people nowadays would be horrified (laughs) Right, right. You couldn't say that. Billy Wisdom and the non-binary persons. <laughs> You're killing me. Yeah, that would be totally true, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we did all that, and then we started getting more into the rock side of things. And, you know, um, then we had an in-store with Motley Crue at the record store for their first record on Leather Records. Yeah. Well, they were signed to Electra, and they I, we let Nikki and Tommy do a window display. So they did this bondage window display at the record store with like a mannequin all tied up, and our windows were broken that night because of it. Oh my god! Yeah, but then we started throwing in like Motley Crue with Bauhaus. You know, it was like wow. We thought it fit. We thought that it was works. Like, we thought it worked, and. Um, we changed the name of the club then to TVC15. And then, um, God. And then after that, then I was asked by Ricky and Tammy. They were starting a new club called Cat House. This is Ricky, and, Ricky Rockman and, um, yeah, wait, and Tammy uh, Down. Yeah, Tammy Down. So, yeah, that was that, was that at Osco's or was yeah, that? Yeah, that was yeah. at Osco's. So, Osco's, was, Osco's, you guys, was, um, these, these are all venues that are no longer in LA. Oh. Osco's was huge. It had a big up, upstairs and downstairs, and your club was downstairs there, right? Upstairs. upstairs. Oh, it was upstairs. Okay. The down, Janice, downstairs. Janice was downstairs with um, English Acid. That's right. And the cave. Yeah, the I love the cave. It had it had like stalactites and stalactites yeah. hanging from the ceiling. That was a great place to do hallucinogenics in. I gotta say. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, right. So then I did Cat House for God forever and with them. And then, wow. Then after that, I did like a techno uh, industrial club called um, Cinematic. And we had like, you know, uh, Kitten DeVille and and Vidita Vantiz and, and all these people were our go-go dancers. Yeah. And, and, and Ronnie Athey was our star performance artist. And we were playing, you know, all that, you know, uh, stuff like, you know, Thrill Kill Cult. And and um, then we, then I started doing, and I wanted to do a glam revival club and I did club makeup. Yeah, let's, and- let's, let's have a little break then because we got a lot to, to talk about with, with um, makeup. Yeah. All right, Joseph. Let's talk about club makeup because I have I have stories. Well, everybody that was in LA at the time has stories, but I've got one that was like so. It just it it still makes me teary eyed when I think of it. But makeup was uh-huh. such 
for anyone listening, makeup was in the El Rey Theater and a huge venue. And it was just, it was like, it was anything you could imagine of a glam rock club, a gay club and a rock and roll club, all like mushed together. People got insanely dressed up again, like with Joseph's other endeavors, there was lines around the block to get in. It was absolutely fabulous. The music was incredible and there was performances there all the time. So take it away, Joseph. So every, it was a once a month event and we would rehearse for a month and uh, we picked themes each month and um, we would deck out the club completely and do a full show, live show on stage with, with bands and um, it was all centered around this. And I would pick the theme and the songs. And then we would find people to do the songs. And um, one particular night, I think that Pleasant's talking about, we did, we wanted to do a punk night. And yeah. so I contacted um, Didi, who I had known for a long time, and asked him if he would be kind enough to perform in the punk show. Because to me, he is... Icon, the icon of it all. I mean, I thought he was the greatest, and um, he agreed to do it. And 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 um, he sang and performed a medley of Ramon songs, and it was beautiful. And and then we had other people perform too and do other punk songs as well. And but at the end of the night, I'll never forget sitting in the dressing room with him, and I was there to pay him and he wouldn't accept any money. And I was like, come on, dude, like, it's okay, you know? And he's like, no, I did this because of, because I wanted to, you know? And, and I had so much pleasure, and it was so beautiful for me to do this, that I won't, I don't want money to come in, involved in this, and I will not accept any payment. And that turned out to be his last performance he ever gave. I know, you know, um, I you had me emceeing that night. Yes. And, um, I was like in the middle of introducing him. I think a lot of people already knew he was, you know, he was going to be playing, but I was introducing him and then he came out on stage and he was getting ready. And I was just talking about the Ramones and all that. And then I kind of like just on the spur of the moment said, I need to do this. And I threw myself down on the floor and I was laying on my belly kissing his sneakers. And I remember looking up and he was looking at me like, what the fuck? I mean, not not horrified, but he just kind of couldn't believe that I did that. And then a few days later, he died. It was. He I'm was gone. Two days right later. Now. What? Yeah, he was gone two days later. Yeah. That was his last show. And 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 that night, you know, talking to him and hanging out with him when, and, and he came to rehearsals and he couldn't have been nicer. You know, he came in the daytime and we rehearsed that. And then that night and hanging out with him and he didn't want anything. You know, he was like, are you OK? Do you want a drink? Do you want? He's like, no, everything's fine. Everything is great. You know, and then not accepting payment. You know, I just thought like. This guy is really a gem. There's like, he's just like a prince. You know, there's nobody like like him. I, I've never experienced something like that. I, he really meant a lot to me. And then, you know, to find out two days later that he was gone, it was just heartbreaking. And I still like think about it too. Because that day, a friend of mine had a little girl, uh, my 
friend Cara brought her daughter to the rehearsal because her daughter was only seven and she couldn't come to the nightclub and she loved the Ramones. This kid, little kid was a Ramones fan and she had a little black leather jacket and uh -huh. she came. I said, well, listen, I'll, you can come in in the afternoon when we do rehearsals and you can meet Dee Dee, right? And he he she did a drawing. She did this crayon drawing of Dee Dee and her walking together, holding uh -huh. hands. And she gave it, she wanted to give it to him. She gave it to him. And then she asked him, she had a, one of those uh, felt tip metallic markers. And she said, would he sign her little leather jacket that she was wearing? And he took the jacket and he drew a complete, covered every inch of it with sort of Keith Haring-ish kind of graffiti art. He drew all over her jacket and gave it to her. Wow. I mean, and she got to hang out with him that afternoon and 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 he couldn't have been nicer. So all I keep thinking about how I can say is like, did he know that he wasn't going to be around too much longer? I don't know. You know, it's like, it's hard to say, but it was a fantastic night and I'll never forget it. But we had lots of other great shows. That, I mean, one night the cult showed up unannounced and they got on stage and played a medley of their heads. It was like amazing. We had, you know, incredible people show up and jam and get in the band and 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 play and and it was a special and it was a really great club but you know it was sort of like my last great club that I ever did and and after that I thought like I can't top this I'm gonna it's gonna be okay you know we used to fly people in from New York we had the toilet boys come and perform a couple of times and that was they were so much fun and it was a fun club. Like yeah. one night we did the Ziggy album from first song to last in order. Things like that. Yeah. You know, things that I like doing like that. That was always fun for me. Yeah, that club was was like like one of the highlights of all Clubland makeup wise. Because also the, the audience was so diverse, as you would say yeah. now. Yeah. But even then it was it was just like everybody. I mean it was it, it it kind of went along with like the theme of of early punk too. I mean, not in not intentionally on your part, but it was like some people don't understand, younger yeah. people don't understand like how um I'm saying this in air quotes, like how inclusive everything was. Like yes. like I've had people argue with me, like, oh well, that you know, there was like no no women doing punk. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because that you know, some people that that aren't as uh, as OG as we are just think of the only thing they think of of punk is hardcore, you know. Right, right. But there was punk before hardcore, yeah. <laughs> and that's when we were involved in it, and what it, what how much it meant to us then, you know. That was you know, I was talking to I saw a kid last week, and we were talking about that with the early scene and what the, how diverse. The crowd was and how it was a lot of the crowd was art damaged kids you know like that we were like you know new movies and art and theater and we like were outcasts in and in regular society anyway and we were listening to music that hardly anybody was interested in and so we were definitely like 
on the edge of what everything else was happening. And, and we all came together in this one scene where you almost knew everybody in the room and, and everyone felt included. And, um, <laughs> well, mostly, I mean, I, I remember sometimes there was this group of girls, um, um, that would, be a little belligerent at some shows like at the whiskey. And I was afraid of them at first. And then I realized like, oh, wait a minute. They're like going to be my best friends. And then they ended up protecting me sometimes when it was later on, when it was more of the hardcore kids would come in, they would be step in and go like, keep your distance, you know, like people like Helen. Yeah. You know, like she, <laughs> she stood up for me several times. Um, and Darby. Yeah. I remember when we went to see PIL at the um, Olympic Auditorium. Do you remember that show? Yes, yes, yes. And we decided to go like really like crazy dressed up. And Henry was wearing platforms and leopard skin and, and all the hardcore kids. Like, cause Henry, Henry Peck does. Henry Peck was about, my not partner. Henry Rollins. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, uh, uh-uh. he wasn't. Henry Rollins wasn't wearing platforms, but Henry Peck was. And um, these these hardcore South Bay kids came up to us and in front of the uh, auditorium, and they tried to stop us from going in. And then Darby came up and came up in front of us and put his arms around us and walked us in. You know, because um, you know, in those days it was very like uh, the hardcore kids, sort of like. Uh, messed up the scene for me and um for everybody that uh, i always try to explain that to people that the heart the the people that most of the people that turned into hardcore punk people were the same assholes that were like throwing garbage at us out the windows of cars or or you know yeah. c- calling us like homo or bowie yeah. or you know yeah. what i mean like, <laughs> They were, they, and then they finally realized that, you know, how cool everything was, but then they, they still had their dumbass attitude. Right. They wrecked it in LA. I mean, I don't know if that's for, for any other um, cities, but like they, they, they sort of like really smashed the original amazing scene to pieces. And I know everything has to like move on and morph and change, but that mm-hmm. that change, I'm still not. I'm still resentful of it. Like almost fifty years later, fuck you, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. I got your back too. <laughs> well, we got them back. You know, at our store. You know, people would come in with their records. You know, and go, "Can will you sell this at your store?" And we'll go, "Like fuck no, this is a piece of shit. We wouldn't carry this." Get the fuck. <laughs> We wouldn't carry any of that stuff. We were like, uh-uh, no way, you know, like, that's trash, you know. We had a bad reputation at that store. We were like, we did, because we were really opinionated. And we had, you know, like, people like Randy working for us, who was equally as opinionated. And equally, we gave him full, you know, we let him say whatever he wanted. We were like, yeah, if you don't want to sell this record to somebody or you don't want them in the store, you can tell them to get the fuck out of here. And Rand- he would. Randy, Kate, Randy was my um, co-editor in Lobotomy and he, he's been passed on for a number of years, but he was so funny and sarcastic. 
But also vinyl fetish did have a reputation for um for every you know for a lot of the clerks just being like bitchy and dismissive. But you you were you were sitting on a gold mine. You could have like charged people and people that were into like um you know um BDSM would have paid to right. listen, whether they were buying a record or not. <laughs> so true. I have this really good friend now, Rose. Do you know Rose Apodaca? Yes. She she lived in, in in Orange County and she and her girlfriends would get one of the parents to drive them up to Melrose for the weekend, right? And then they used to stand in front of my store and they used to dare each other to walk in and ask for a record. And I would be standing behind the counter, you know, like, you know, like hostile. And she would walk in and she would be like, who's going to ask for the record? They were also afraid of us. But, you know, we had Randy, we had Lisa Francher, um, who had Frontier Records. And we had Jet, um, who um, also started a label. He was was a good friend of of kids as well. Oh, that's right. I remember Jet. And Marcy Blaustein, who went on to work with Lydia Lunch. And she, she also lived at Disgrace Island. Yeah. So we had like people that worked in there that also had similar attitude, you know, like, which we encouraged, we encouraged, like, you know, like, we're here to sell what we consider to be good music. But if you ask something we we don't like, you can leave. Let's let's take one uh, one more little break, and I want to talk to you about when um, when we wound up in Memphis together. Okay, so I'm back with Joseph Brooks, who's telling the most outrageous stories on earth. This this podcast could go on for four hours this episode, but we're we're trying to condense it. So um let's let's talk about this because um I want to find out what, what you thought about this whole thing. Joseph and I had both come separately to Memphis for Elvis week because Elvez was playing. Wait, you weren't there? No. Who was it? It was it only Henry? Yeah, it was just Henry. Oh, okay. Oh, so we can't. Well, I can I can tell you this because you you sure. may or may not know this, but I didn't know that Henry was in town, and I was uh-huh. I was dancing with Elvez who was playing uh-huh. Elvis week, and um. I decided to go to Al Green's church, um, wake up really early after drinking all night and go to Reverend Al Green's church, which was incredible. And there was, um, you know, there was a full choir full of beautiful old women like singing and it, it was just celestial. And Al Green was like, I mean, he was a he was preaching in that movie kind of Elmer Gantry old school preacher way, but it was this was it was like a show. This was like a club on Sunday morning, 
And when we were leaving it, we saw saw the guitar player from the band who had a van. And this this guy, he had like a big star tattooed on his forehead. And he had like, he looked very like he'd been influenced by Jimi Hendrix. And his van was covered in little plastic toys and stuff. And I was standing there looking at it. And then um, Joseph's partner from Vinyl Fetish, Henry was there. I can't remember who he was with, but like, then we just started talking about church and which of of the Psalms were our favorite <laughs> or like all green. It was insanity. That's wild. Henry used to collect gospel records. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. He had, a, he had a huge collection of gospel records. Oh, see, so that would have made more sense to me back in the day because I had no idea. And I didn't, you know, there, it's not like there was other people from Elvis week going to, to Al Green's church. Wow. Right. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And he would go to churches here in LA and South Central yeah, um, yeah. to see like choirs and stuff. I remember, um, I can't remember her name, but we went and saw somebody. I went with him once. Um, can't remember. But anyway, it was he fun. He and Jeffrey Lee Pierce used to go down there all the time, not not to watch choirs, but to go to the, the junk stores and get records all the time. You, oh, could, yeah. get, you could get those white label. Um, like raunchy, like uh, reggae records with like, you could tell um, it was reggae stars because you could recognize the voices and stuff, but they would all be singing like dirty, dirty fucking songs about sex and stuff. I, I still have some of those somewhere. They were amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's a fun. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, so let, let's talk about... Um, what you're up to now and who you're listening to now and all that, because um, for anyone that doesn't know Joseph Brooks, you got to follow him. He makes, he makes incredible high end spiritual and gorgeous jewelry out of gems. So how, how did you get into all of this? I want to know. Um, when I was a kid, I used to collect rocks and I was always into that. And believe it or not, I went to college and I graduated with, uh, in jewelry and painting. So like um, I learned in college how to, to be do jewelry and I kind of got swept away by rock and roll and and, and didn't do it for a really long time. But um, I, I always had like this love of uh, nature and, and the stones that come out of the ground are like so amazing to me. And uh, you know, the music scene changed a lot and, and um, I didn't relate to a lot of the new stuff that was coming out. And um, I thought just time for me to, to do something else. And I uh, started collecting stones again and started making jewelry out of it. And uh, pretty soon it, it started snowballing and becoming a real you know, every day kind of a thing for me. And and now it's like full time every day, all the time. And uh, I sell it all over the the world and, and um, I've had great success with, with it and um, people wearing it really appreciate it and really love it and feel connected to the stones. And that just makes me happy when I hear that, when people write to me and tell me like, Oh, I got this necklace and it means everything to me. And I, I just feel the energy of the stone and, and it, it's perfect for me to wear all the time. And, and then this year, um, 
I did this necklace and Kate Moss wore it. And she wears it all the time. She wears it in, in an opening in London, in an opening in New York, in an opening in Paris. She wears it to go shopping. She wears it all the time. And, and it just, on, on social media, like people were like flipping out and going like, where did you get this necklace? You know, like a big honking crystal on a handmade sterling chain. And, and people wanted it. And so I started making more and more of them. And uh, these days I make all kinds of jewelry and bracelets and rings and the Bowie, and the Bowie, the Bowie bolt bracelet, the necklace that you get. Yeah, I'm wearing one right now. I carved, I got this carver in India who said he could do some shapes. So I, I did the drawing of the classic Aladdin same lightning bolt makeup and I sent it to him. I said, can you carve this in stone? And so he did. And, and I, I launched it for Bowie's birthday um, in January and, people responded in a huge way to it. And everyone was like, wow, that is such a cool thing because it combines my love of music and my love of stones all in one. And, and it just was a great thing for me to do. And I feel really connected to uh, turquoise and I, um, I do a lot with uh, real authentic uh, um, Arizona turquoise. I do a lot of jewelry with that. And, um, a lot of crystals and I have connections. I, I travel a lot and, and meet people in Brazil and in India and, 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 and I buy stones everywhere I go. And, uh, and I'm having a great time with it. It's sort of like a new career for me. It's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's amazing that you did this. I mean, did you ever in the olden days envision that you were going to become a no. jeweler? Uh -huh. I know. No, and then people go like, "Oh, you should open a store." But I learned my lesson with the record store, <laughs> like that uh, retail is not my strong suit. You know, I will never do that again. You, you could be the bitchiest jewelry store ever. Like, for, for, forget about like you know Van Cleef and Arpel or Tiffany's. You could be cussing people out of your store. Right. I just get the fuck out of here. No, I. You know, like um. I'm changed. I'm not that person anymore, but I also can't deal with the public. You know, I still like, I still like doing like being a DJ, you be in the booth and you don't have to deal with people. You know, that was my way of doing it. You know, I really liked it. Being in the record store, being behind the counter and go like, okay, what do you want? It's okay. But engaging with people in, in a retail setting, I just not interested in doing that. And it's not suited for me anyway. You know, I like being here in my studio and making jewelry and then sending it out into the world and people loving it and finding it. That's, I'm very happy with that setup. Well, let's, okay. So, so, so since, uh, since we're talking about um, not speaking to people, I just want to ask you um, about one more thing before we go, because uh -huh. This is fascinating to me. Um, and Joseph is an avid bird watcher, and it, it's so many people from punk rock are involved with with birds. Me, me too. I mean, hashtag uh -huh. me too. No, so so when you're on your trips like around the globe to get stones, yeah. you're like yeah. just looking for exotic birds and stuff. Is yeah. that how it goes? Same time. Yeah. What? Yes, at the same time, at the same time, the places in the world where um, amazing nature is also, you know, the places where there's great stones as well. So, you know, um, I, I travel as much as I can. I've been 
you name it, I've been there. I mean, we've traveled all over the world, like looking for birds, looking for nature, looking for stones. And um, it's taken me, you know, just about everywhere. We're planning a, planning to go back to Indonesia in, in June, to Sumatra. Um, I'm going back to Peru again. Um, I just was in Bolivia. Um, I, travel is, I love it. I just, you know, I can't get it. And the more you travel, the more you find out about more places to go. It, it's not like the world gets smaller and instead it gets much bigger. Yeah. And, and, and the more people you meet and the more stuff, it's just, it's so much fun. I can't think of anything I like better than travel. I mean, it's so cool. Same. It opens Same. your world up. It opens your world up. You know, it's like staying, you know, it's instead of, you know, I don't want a small life. I want a big life. You know, I'm, you know, how lucky are we that we're still here? You and I, I know. I mean, how many people we know that aren't, you yes. know, like, think about that. Like, wow. I think about that all the time. You know, I'm grateful I am that I have the life I have. I'm able to do what I need to do. And, and, um, I still have like my mind and my health and I still enjoy every day. Just both like, knock on wood right now. I'm knocking really loud <laughs> for both of us. We're how lucky we are. We're so lucky like to still be here. I mean, if we think about who we started out with in this scene and who's still around, there's a lot gone. Oh my God. Yeah. I know it's, it's, it's been like that in, in our scene, maybe more than um like the average person seeing rock and roll always like there's, there's always been casualties, whether it was called like car wrecks or drugs or freak accident because, because we were born to be wild. No, um, you know, that's, that's just what happens. But now like you and I are like, like b bona fide senior citizens. <laughs> hilarious right i know it's totally hilarious because i still feel exactly the same inside in my head i'm still like that kid totally. exactly yeah i don't want to lose that no i don't well not at all you, you won't you know we're, we're having our second childhood but without without um dementia so far <laughs> because we were always demented <laughs> right right completely yeah you know, we walked a path that people laid out for us. You know, people made a, a a clearing in the weeds that we followed. You know, and like, and they're gone. It's like you know, and and I I'm so grateful for everything and all the people that showed me how to live and how to nego you know navigate this world. And and I'm grateful for it. I really am. No, yeah, me too. I mean, this is this is also something like that probably neither one of us would have thought of saying in those days. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, you know, we would think back then, like, oh God, they're so corny. Like, <laughs> listen to those two two old people being so corny. Like, I would never want to say that. You know, but listen now to I, those fucking hippies. Remember when hippie was the worst insult ever? The worst thing. What about when the shows where people would set a fire to people's hair if it was too long? Oh, I know. <laughs> or or one more thing I want to remind you of and and, and then we gotta go. Um do you remember in the early punk shows how there was always like like a bunch of hippies in the back doing like in, interpretive dance and all the like at the dam. I swear to God, do you <laughs> Right. Right. 
That was that was the LA punk scene that nobody talks about. No, absolutely not. Places like the Starwood, you know, there'd be like people that were left over from then still going there. Yeah, that's right? what I mean. The Starwood was was like the the palace of that. That like the whole front would be rock and roll kids, and then right. then the back it was people like direct from the Grateful Dead parking lot, just doing like like crazy ass fucking ballet and or whatever they were doing. Do you remember like in the balcony at the Starwood, there would be this guy there with like a giant shag haircut, and it was that guy Blackie Lawless. Yeah, Blackie Lawless. And he would come to all the punk shows and he was like a relic from another age. Yeah. There was, I, I know, like we could we could just go on and on about this, how how I used to like stick my school notebook behind the bar at the at the start. <laughs> and um, they knew that I was like 16 and would just serve me anyway. And I wasn't the only one that was happening to. Wow. I used to sneak kids in wherever we were, like at lingerie or at Cathay de Grand. I'd sneak underage kids in. Like I, I, they'd all go like, "We need to come to your club," and I'd be like, "Okay, meet me at the kitchen door." Yeah, we, right. We'd go go in and open the kitchen door, and they'd flood in. And I'd be like, "Okay, great," and close the door. I would do that at Cathay de Grand and at Raji's, you know, because I booked both of them. They were owned by the same people. I would just go to the kitchen door and let tons of people in. And some of, them would, some of them would actually come up and like pay, but when, and then like they, they'd like give their admission money and then run downstairs so they get lost and not get thrown out. <laughs> I would always tell people like mingle quickly, you know, yeah. like we, yeah. blend in. No one will recognize you. You've got a leather jacket and black hair. You'll blend in. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, Joseph, it's been it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Like this Likewise. go on and on and on. So that was Joseph Brooks. And um catch the next episode of The Devil's Music. It's a god-awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair. But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 